You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see all of you. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Uh, Let's pray as we go to God's Word today. And so, Father, we thank you uh, that uh, you have given us a living hope in Jesus Christ, that we don't follow some dead teacher, but a living, risen Lord uh, who is present with us now over his people. And Jesus, I pray you would instruct us by your spirit from your word uh, that you would grow our confidence in what you have done and we'd live like people who live in your story and know the end. Pray it in your name, Jesus. For your sake. Amen. So years ago, I was watching a movie and this couple gets into a fight and the husband says to his wife, why do you waste time going to church? Listening to all that nonsense. And maybe some of you had this argument this morning. Uh, it's irrational. It's unscientific. And the wife gets flustered and emotional and she responds, I go because it makes me feel better. It helps me get through life. And I think that scene reflects a popular sentiment in our culture. And it goes something like this. Like, if you want truth, if you want facts, that's what science is for. That's what logic is for. If you want to know how reality works, you need those disciplines. But if you want meaning in life, if you want purpose and values, that's what faith is for. That's what religion is for. So you have science over here, faith over here, facts over here, values over here, and and never the twain shall meet. And I think often people of faith struggle to give reasons for what they believe. And and conversely, people without faith who are very science-minded struggle to articulate some bigger meaning in life, some purpose in life. What ought we to do? It's been very interesting to me that recently a number of prominent atheists have begun to appreciate uh, religion and faith. In fact, Richard Dawkins, the world's probably best-known atheist, uh, you know, he used to say things like religion poisons everything. That's what he said when I was in grad school. Uh, but, but now, 20 years later, he's coming to admit that religion is, is pretty useful. And, and he says not because it's true— but because it does seem to make people good. If you believe there's some eye in the sky watching you, you tend to be more honest. And he says, I don't know if I want a world without religion. Some atheists go further. Uh, Some say that our moral intuitions just are Christian. If you're in the West, they're fundamentally Christian. And so we should sort of act like Christians, even though we don't believe in Christianity. Douglas Murray describes himself as a Christian atheist. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he sees something that's true, how deeply our moral intuitions are formed by Jesus in the Western world, and he doesn't want to lose that. Speaking of Christianity, the historian Molly Worthen once said, I wish it were true. And I think that sentiment is quite common. We have science and data and facts, but we need some bigger meaning and purpose to life, and Christianity seems to offer that. I just wish it was true. So in one sense, the the woman in the movie is right. Faith gives you meaning. You know what? Faith will help you get through life. There are tremendous practical benefits to faith. Did you know that? Tyler Vanderweel, he's a professor of public health at Harvard, 
and he calls religion a miracle drug. Why does he say that? Well, regular church attendance is correlated with lower rates of depression, greater optimism, greater purpose, more marital stability, greater self-control. And the truth is this. You know what? If you act like a Christian, you probably will be happier. If you follow Christianity's teachings, you'll probably have improved mental health because you'll have really thick relationships and you'll be less greedy and you'll be more generous and you'll see your work as a calling and you'll be more content and you'll have more gratitude and you'll be more forgiving. And you know what? All of those things are associated with longevity and happiness and mental health. Christianity is pretty useful in giving you meaning. You can't find that just from the hard Sciences. Okay, having said all that, here's the tension to explore today. Let's grant that religion, more specifically Christianity, has all of these positive benefits. Man, if you believe this stuff, it'll make your life richer and more meaningful. Is it worth believing even if it's false? I'll let Paul answer that question. Paul says this. I'll just read it for you. There it is. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are what? Of all people most to be pitied. What what is Paul saying? In effect, if Christianity is just a myth, if there's nothing more to it than kind of a useful system of values, if it isn't true in some abiding sense, then we're miserable. We're pitiful. Why? That's what I want to talk about today. This is an Easter sermon, okay? That's what this is. But that's fine, because we should have Easter sermons outside of Easter, because the resurrection is at the root of our faith. And we need to talk about it all the time, if it's the root of our faith. This is the foundation. Paul is putting his finger on something that we intuitively sense, that whatever I give my life to, it has to satisfy two criteria. One thing, I have to actually believe it's true, that the thing happened, that there are reasons to believe it. And second, it has to satisfy this longing for meaning, that the thing I put my life in, it, it, it makes sense out of life in some transcendent way, and therefore it's worth living for. And Paul says the resurrection and only the resurrection meet both of those criteria. So we're going to talk about Christ's resurrection in history. The early Christians thought this happened in history, first of all. That's verses 12 through 19. And second, looking at Christ's resurrection in his story, in God's story, how this all makes the story of our lives fit together and brings together things that that are often put apart, the world of facts and history and the world of values and religion. So that's where we're going, okay? I'm going to try to go there quickly, so hang with me. First, Christ's resurrection in history. If you look at every major religion and ask, what makes Christianity different? What makes Christianity unique? The one thing that is so unique about Christianity is that the entire belief system is hinging on a singular historical claim. It's not based on just a system of values or some nice spiritual metaphor. It's based on a claim 
that God did something in history, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Christianity is so tethered to that historical claim that were it to be proven false, the entire thing falls apart. Without a historical resurrection, there is no Christianity. Why? Paul tells us in today's passage. Verse 12. Here's the Corinthians' problem. Paul says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. It's all about the resurrection. And we wonder, why does Paul devote so much time to the resurrection? Well, now we know. Apparently, some of the Corinthians were beginning to deny the resurrection. Now, why on earth would Christians do that? Well, the early Christians believed that there would be a future resurrection of the dead at the end of time. But some of the Corinthians weren't that excited about that idea. Probably because they had absorbed the Greek culture around them. The the Greeks had a high view of the spirit. They had a low view of the body. And in fact, the body was considered inferior to the soul. The body was like a cage that kept the soul confined. The Greeks had a, a phrase for it, soma, toma. Somatoma, that means the body is a tomb that you need to be freed from. That was the bumper sticker on all the chariots back then, Somatoma. And Greeks longed for this liberation from the body to dwell in a realm of pure ideas and spirit. And apparently the Corinthians said, yeah, that's great. We're spiritual Christians. We have the Holy Spirit. We just exist on the spiritual plane. And when we die, no resurrection of the body. We're just freed to live in this realm of the spirit. And Paul says, that's a disastrous idea. He says that kind of thinking is disastrous. Why? He goes on to tell us. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, if you took logic in high school or college, you can appreciate what Paul does. He says, if you believe X, you must believe Y. I know you don't like Y and don't believe that. So you must not believe X either. Right? Paul sees this inextricable link between our resurrection and Jesus's, such that to deny one is to deny the other. And in a moment, we'll see why. But here's Paul's point. If you deny the resurrection, you deny Jesus' resurrection. And if you deny Jesus' resurrection, Christianity is a sham. It's a fraud. He says it's an empty message, and therefore it's empty to believe in it. Paul goes on. He says the message is in vain. He says we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Go on, Bart. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. What's Paul saying? Our fundamental message was what? God raised Jesus from the dead. That was not some nice spiritual claim like... um, You know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Even in the hardest times, life's going to get better. That's not what that meant. It was a historical claim. It'd be like showing up and saying on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces invaded Normandy. They stormed the beach. That's the kind of claim. This happened. God raised Jesus. Therefore, if God didn't raise Jesus, we're liars. We're bearing false witness about what God did. It's a vain message. It's an empty message. And therefore, believing it is what? Empty. In verse 2, Paul hinted at this idea that your belief might be in vain. And now he clarifies what he meant. 
Our belief is empty. It is futile. It is meaningless. If what? If Christ did not rise from the dead. Paul goes on and he says this, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It is fruitless. It is empty. And you are still what? In your sins. What is Paul saying? Christian faith is faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. Now, in the Bible, sin leads to death. It means we're separated from God. And so Jesus comes to die for our sins so that we won't be separated from God, so that we won't have to die forever. Now, how do we know that Jesus' death was for our sins, forgave our sins, and removed the barrier between us and God. How do you know that? The only way to know that is through the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death is just like any other death. The resurrection shows that our sin fell on Jesus. He paid the penalty. He defeated sin. And nothing can separate Jesus from his father. So he rises from the dead. Therefore, nothing will separate us from God either. So sin and death will not ultimately defeat us. We will not remain under judgment. We will not have this barrier. But if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, what does it mean that the barrier is still there? That sin still reigns, that death still reigns, that we are living under judgment. The living are under judgment, the dead are under judgment. Those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, those who died believing in Jesus, they're gone. They've perished under the judgment of God. Now, do you see why Paul says that hoping in Jesus, in a dead Jesus, in the grave, is pitiful? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're believing a lie. We're misrepresenting God. The fundamental human problem of sin, death, and decay hasn't been dealt with. And we have no hope for the future. No forgiveness of sin. No matter how useful it is to have those beliefs, Paul would say. No matter how much it gives meaning and purpose to our lives, if God didn't do it, then we're believing a lie and that's just sad. You know, occasionally a well-meaning Christian will say something like this. They'll kind of act like a Corinthian. They'll say, you know, I know Jesus lives because he lives in where? Me. He lives in me. And even if they found the body of Jesus in Palestine, I know he lives because he lives in my heart. And Paul would say, you are of all people most to be pitied. If you believe that. Because the Bible The grand narrative of the Bible is not about us escaping the world to live on some spiritual plane of existence. It's about the God who created this world intervening in this world to rescue this world from sin, death, and decay so that this world is redeemed and renewed. It's about God putting this world to right and undoing the effects of sin and death. And the sign that God's done it is what? The resurrection. The resurrection. And if you lose the resurrected body of Jesus, you lose the proof that God is acting in this world to undo our problems. It all hangs on that. You don't have Christianity without a resurrection. Paul shows us the impossibility of what the Corinthians are trying to do, which is create this Christianity that sort of floats above history. 
that's just about spirituality and, and metaphors and doesn't deal with the reality of this world, the injustice of this world, the sin and death of this world. So after showing the impossibility of this hypothetical, I love it, Paul finally brings us back into reality. Verse 20, but in fact, don't you love that? In fact, that was all theory. Now in reality, Christ has been raised. Paul doesn't say this simply as an article of religious faith. He says it as an eyewitness to what? A historical fact. The early Christians believed it because it was the best explanation of the evidence they had. They didn't believe in spite of the evidence. Their doubt was overcome by the overwhelming evidence that this actually happened. Why would you believe the resurrection happened? Four reasons, really quickly. Kyle said, study this last week. I'm just going to study it for you and tell you what to, to, you know. Wet your appetite. There's way more to see in this. Four reasons to think this is not a myth. In fact, I think it takes more faith to believe it's a myth than to believe it happened. Here's why. First, the story of Christ's resurrection is too undeveloped to be a myth. Too undeveloped. There are 17 documents in the first century that talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They are early, early. They are based on earlier testimony that goes back to right around the time of Jesus. And a broad consensus of scholars, believing and unbelieving, would say four things. They'd say, we know Jesus was crucified by the Romans around 30 AD. We know he was buried. We know that the tomb was found empty. And we know that later his earliest followers claimed to see him. That, that's just based on historical data. What's the best explanation? Well, first, that all happened really quickly. And if you know anything about a legend or a myth, they take time to develop. We can trace testimony of Christ's resurrection back to within 10 years of his crucifixion. You don't develop myths in 10 years. Let me give you an example, okay? If I said, you know, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he was BFFs with Abraham Lincoln. Did you know that? They were tight. He counseled him. You'd say, that's interesting. Who knows if it's true, right? I don't know. Maybe you had some random relative in Illinois. Who knows? Uh, but if I said, you know, uh, back in 2012, while uh, Barack Obama was president, I, I played him in basketball and I dunked on him. C could you believe that legend? Well, you'd say, A, one, no, because Jeff, you can't dunk. That'd be number one. Number two, you wouldn't believe it because everyone who lived back then could falsify the claim. You could ask him. You could ask people around him. Does anyone know him? It's easy to falsify. That was the resurrection. It would have been easy to falsify. The people claiming an empty tomb did it in the place where everyone could have falsified the information. And yet that's where Christian faith takes root. It's too undeveloped. Second, it's too unpopular to be a myth. If you were going to create a myth, this is an unmarketable myth. Okay. It's filled with counterproductive information. For example, in the gospel accounts, who reports the resurrection of Jesus? Who sees him? It's all women. And in the first century culture, women's testimony wasn't admissible in court. Women were viewed as unreliable witnesses. In fact, one of the first claims against Christianity was, it was women who saw Jesus. How could you believe this? And today we'd say, exactly. <laughs> the thing that you thought lent it against his credibility. See, why would they have written that unless they thought that's what happened? It's not a marketable message. Saying to Jews, 
We believe in a crucified Messiah. That's a contradiction in terms. The Messiah was supposed to conquer, not get crucified. That's not a popular message. You wouldn't create that message for Jews. For Greeks, you wouldn't create a message about the resurrection of the body. They didn't want eternity in a body. This is a bad timeshare presentation, okay? It's not marketable. This would not sell, which means what? It's less likely to be a myth. Third, it's too unique to be a myth. The the disciples didn't see this coming. Their view of resurrection was something that happened to everyone at the end of time. They didn't believe that one person would be raised in the middle of time. That's a radical paradigm shift. What explains it, they would have had to really believe that they had seen him alive in a body to change their worldview that dramatically. And finally, all of the alternatives are so unlikely that it shows the likelihood that it happened. So so if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what happened? I mean, there are a few options, right? There's the idea that he didn't really die on the cross, right? I mean, perhaps these highly trained Roman executioners had an off day. And they ripped Jesus' body apart and they nailed his hands and his feet to a cross and punctured his heart with a spear and laid him in a tomb. But these trained executioners didn't quite kill him. Then in the cool of the evening, Jesus got up and rolled a stone and tracked down his followers, revealed himself to them as the Lord of life and hung out with them for five weeks and then quietly slipped away to die in secret. That's, That's a lot of faith to believe that, isn't it? A lot of faith. Some people say, well, it's a hallucination. You know, Jesus' followers were just so overcome with sorrow that they just imagined he was alive and took comfort in that. There's a couple problems with that. First, there's no such thing as a mass hallucination. One person has hallucination, and we call them crazy when that happens. 500 people don't have hallucinations at the same time. If I said, hey, guys, do you see those, that pink elephant right here next to me? right? You'd get a new pastor. You wouldn't think, you know, or maybe Jeff needs a nap. You wouldn't say, yes, Jeff, right? Um, Even if if there was a simultaneously hallucination, mine wouldn't be identical to yours. So that's the first problem with the theory. Here's the second problem. Let's say the disciples did hallucinate. But what did the earliest Christians proclaim? They proclaimed an empty tomb. An empty tomb. That's pretty easy to falsify. Just go find the body. Just go record what happened. They, they preached this in the seat of resistance to it. Still others hypothesize that maybe the disciples stole the body and falsely claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. In other words, they made up a lie. Now, could they have pulled off a conspiracy like that? Uh, J. Warner Wallace was a homicide detective, and so he studied conspiracies a lot. And he said, if you want to pull off a conspiracy, here are three things you need. First, you need not many conspirators. Very small number, because it's hard to keep a lie straight, right? Second, you need a very short time span to pull off the lie. The more often you have to repeat the lie, the more often you are to what? To slip up and be inconsistent. Third, you must have little to no pressure to confess, right? Anything that causes you pain or discomfort, someone is likely to fess up at some point. Now, let's consider the disciples' situation. Many people claim to see Jesus, Many people maintain that belief over the next six decades. Many people go to their death and suffer horribly for believing it. That does not sound like a conspiracy at all. And the more deeply you look into this evidence, the more you realize that it takes faith to believe it's a myth. 
It takes faith to believe it didn't happen. That's why uh, Shusaku Endo, I love this quote. He's the Japanese author who wrote The Silence. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing. For if we try to explain the changed lives of early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. Here's the implication of what he is saying, that the resurrection gives us a historical basis, go to the next slide, to believe that God actually acted in history and satisfies our need for what? A reasonable belief. A reasonable belief. Not just wishful thinking belief, but belief that is an inference made from the best explanation. That's how you reason historically, right? If you want to acquire scientific knowledge, it's inductive reasoning. You've got to form a hypothesis and then perform experiments. For philosophy, you need deductive reasoning. You need what Paul just did, if and then and logic. But if you want to know history, the only way to know what happened historically is abductive reasoning. Because everything in history only happens once. And you have to make an inference to the best explanation, which means what are the clues? What are the clues? And this satisfies our need for a reasonable belief that God has done something. This, this is what changed my life at the age of 15. It did, because I grew up believing in Jesus, loving Jesus. I loved Jesus with my heart. I didn't love him with my mind. I, I longed to know Jesus this way, but I felt like I had to shut this off. And I told my youth pastor, and he said, no, you don't. And I said, yeah, but I have questions. I have good doubts. And he's like, okay, tell me. And I told him all of them. He's like, yeah, there's answers. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, there's answers to all those. He's like, you're the first person who's doubted in 2,000 years? Like, seriously? He was sarcastic, which helped. But uh, so he took me to a conference and we learned all this stuff. And it was the first time I finally felt like there was harmony between my mind and my heart. That I could believe with both and not think I had to disconnect myself. So, so that's the first appeal here is that this helps make sense out of what actually happens because we believe in a God who actually intervenes in history. Does that make sense? Here's a second point though. The resurrection apart from a larger story, what does it mean? Who knows? Right? If you just go, oh, I believe the resurrection because of history, it's got to mean something. Well, if, you know, at the least it means something weird happened. Right? It's just a weird event. I mean, I've had lots of weird events in my life. What do they mean? I don't know. So how do you explain how this fits in? Well, that's where the biblical story comes in. And now Paul tells us it's not just Christ's resurrection, but how Christ's resurrection makes sense of the story of the world and the story the Bible is telling. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I, I love what Paul does here because he puts together the entire biblical story in about three verses. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. You know what the first fruits of a harvest are? It's those little buds at the very beginning of the harvest. What do they show? That the rest of the harvest is coming. The, the first fruits in the Old Testament, they'd be dedicated to God. They'd be given to God, trusting that he was going to bring in the rest of the harvest. And that's Christ's resurrection. The Bible 
is a story, it's a rescue story about God delivering us from the sin and death that came through our first parent, Adam. Adam is the leader of the human race. And when Adam sins, that's the first fruits of what? Sin and death. And, and before you say, well, you know, if I had been there, I wouldn't have done what Adam did, right? I don't want being represented by him. I don't know. Judging by our track record, I don't know. <laughs> Seems like he was a pretty good representative for all of us. And we've all gone astray. But in Adam, the leader of the human race, we all turn from God and it unleashes this torrent of sin and death and decay. And that's the biblical story. And the big question is, what will God do to undo this torrent of sin, death and decay and make the world right? And here's the tension in the biblical story. God said that humanity would rule over the world. That, that we were made in the image of God to rule the world. Psalm 8 says that he's put creation under our feet. That we're created to have dominion and subdue evil, but instead we get subdued by evil. We get overwhelmed by the enemy, unleashes death, and then Christ comes and he's the first member of a new humanity. He's the one who undoes death and Christ's resurrection is a preview of coming attractions. Christ rises so that all who trust in him, and that's who Paul is talking about, will rise as well. And now God is unworking in Christ what, God, what happened in Adam. Paul goes on to talk about how history is unfolding now. He must reign, Christ, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. I love what Paul does here. He combines Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Psalm 8 is about humans being created in the image of God. You know what it says? God has put everything under our feet to rule, to reign. We're created to reign, but we're ruled by sin and death, right? That's the problem. So what does God do? He sends Jesus, the new human, and he finally does what humanity was supposed to do. He rules, he resists sin, he subdues evil, he defeats Satan, he lives in perfect trusting communion with God, he rules and then he demonstrates his rule by dying for sin, triumphing over it, and he's raised. And Psalm 110 pictures this risen king who's reigning as humanity's representative, doing what humanity was supposed to do, reigning and putting all things under his feet, subduing Satan and sin, and finally the great enemy, death the last enemy to be destroyed. Everything that wrecks and despoils God's good creation. Christ fulfills destinies, humanity's destiny. And ultimately it shows that God is this perfect harmonious plan to bring everything into harmony and order, which is why Paul goes on to say, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, the father who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's what Paul is saying, that from eternity past, the father and the son and the spirit have been working this perfect plan to bring everything into order. The father has arranged this plan. 
And the son accomplishes this plan. And the father and the son are one in their desire to bring this plan to fruition. And the father glorifies the son and puts everything under the son's authority. And then the son, in loving response, at the end of time, gives everything to his father in humble submission and offers it. What is Paul saying? That the triune God has a perfect, harmonious plan in history to bring everything into harmony. And he's almost, can you just see him? He's just giving up trying to explain what's happening at this point, right? That God might be all in all. That doesn't mean that everything will be God. It means everything will be perfectly under God's reign. Everything will be whole, will be just, will be at peace, and death itself will die. And we in Christ will have this fulfillment of everything we were supposed to be, ruling and reigning over the earth with God permanently victorious over sin, death, and evil. Do you see why people wish it was true? Even if they don't believe it. This is the story we all want to be true. That this world can actually get fixed. Because the one thing we can't deal with in this culture is the reality that death ends all of our stories. That death is the great robber. My, My wife is a hospice nurse. And it's so interesting, you know, when she goes through her training as a hospice nurse, None of these people are believers. And the thing they tell you immediately as a hospice nurse is that everyone in our culture denies the reality of death. We are constantly ignoring, avoiding, thinking about the inevitability of death. And instead, numbing ourselves with these immortality projects because we don't want to think about just how quickly it could all end because it's a very uncomfortable question, isn't it? Because the minute you think about that, you have to say, well, what could I do with my life that would mean anything, what, after my death? What could I possibly do that could outlive me? And if you have no big capital S story for the universe, nothing will outlive you. People will forget you. Your corpse will rot. Eventually, your ancestors won't even know who you are. And everything you built will crumble. So what could you possibly give your life to that would be meaningful? That would endure that death would not rob. This is the only story that can make sense out of our longing to do something that truly lasts and matters. This is it. And that's why I believe in the resurrection. Because it meets my mind's need for a rational explanation, but it meets my heart's need for a big enough story to live in. And one of the reasons I think people are so anxious and depressed in our culture, one of the reasons, is because they're just living in a really small story. It's a story that death's going to ruin. It's either a story of, I just need to, to, to get as much wealth as I can, get as much pleasure as I can. The ancient Greeks figured out that's a miserable existence. <laughs> it's, I, I need to get this success, but what happens when I hit that success? I guess I need to get more success. You just get a treadmill of success. For, for some people, it's political progress in the world. But look, you know, the party, it's going to swing back and your party's going to lose. The other party's going to win. Is that what you're living for? For some people, it's like not being my parents. That's the story of my life. Like I'm just going to react against the generation before me. And guess what? Your kids are going to react against you because you reacted against them. And no one wants to die on their tombstone and says, I was not like my parents. That's my identity. That's not a meaningful life. So many of our stories in the West are individual and they just reduce the size of meaning down to the size of me. That's a a paltry existence. 
I want to I give my life for something that'll be true a million years from now. Not, not false the moment I die. Only Jesus satisfies that need. You know, Molly Worthen, who I, I mentioned earlier, the one who wished Christianity was true, she's a, a fascinating case because uh, she's a history professor at, the, at UNC Chapel Hill. She's actually an expert in Christianity, in modern Christianity. She studied it her whole life, and she, she wasn't a believer. And she began to sense this longing to wish the Christian story were true. And then she just asked a pastor, she said, I wish it was true. And he said, wish? It is. Investigate it. And she said, it was the first time as a historian, I thought maybe I should look at the history. (laughs) Even though she was a historian of modern Christianity, and she said, this is the first time I really thought, well, have I looked at this as deeply as I should and considered the claims? And as she did, she found herself believing it. She found it more reasonable to believe than not to believe. But she said something so interesting, and I'll end with this. She came to a crisis in her faith where she said, it still felt like there was a chasm between me and Jesus. And I was just waiting for some warm fuzzies or some religious experience to know that I was really a believer and could cross the line. But she said, even though I felt this chasm between me and Jesus, I felt this other chasm opening up. And it was the chasm of what it would mean to reject Jesus. And it was like the the neutrality was gone. And as I saw who Jesus was more clearly and how he made sense out of history and our longing for a bigger story, it was like the chasm to jump away from Jesus was bigger than the chasm to jump toward him. And there was nothing in between. And I would encourage you, if you're considering Jesus, that story has happened again and again because only Jesus Christ and only the historical claims of Christianity have a way of satisfying the deepest longings of our heart. And this is the only plausible explanation that puts it all together. The world of facts and values, it's all in the resurrection. And that's why I'd invite you to consider Jesus. There is no one else like him. And you owe it to yourself to consider his claims if you haven't yet. And I'd love to talk to you more about that if you're ready to take that next step. Let's pray. And so Jesus, I thank you uh, that we have reasons to believe that can address the needs of our mind and the needs of our heart as we think about living in your story. And Lord, I pray specifically for anyone here who is still considering uh, your claims. And I'm just so grateful they're here, Lord. And I pray that that by your spirit, uh, you would draw them to yourself and they would see, Jesus, that there is no one like you. No one has claimed what you've claimed. No one has done what you have done. And no one has come out of death on the other side holding the keys. So Jesus, we worship you this morning, we praise you, and we thank you for giving us the story worth living in. And that because you rose, we have confidence that we will rise too. That our own death isn't something we look forward to, but something we look back on. That we died in you, and so we will live forever. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.